Well, hi, it's great to be with you. I uh, really hope you had a good summer. I've not been around for the last two or three weeks, so it's really nice to be with you again today. And if you've got your Bible, could you grab it? And we're going to be in Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one. And what we're going to do over these next two Sundays is look at a couple of big cultural, pastoral issues, which might not come up in the normal course of preaching through a book or a series on something else, but which we feel are really important to help us think about how to be Christians in this kind of culture. And we did this last year. If you were around last year, you may remember we did a, a message on how we care for God's creation and something on transgender and gender dysphoria. We did something on same-sex relationships, those sorts of subjects. And we're going to do something a bit similar this year. So next week, we're going to look at the whole area of singleness and the family of God. And this week, we're going to look at the question of how we display God's heart for children, particularly through the areas of abortion, adoption, and the grace of God and how it applies to both. And that's a challenging thing to do. It's a really challenging subject. It's going to be hard to hear for some of us. Many of us have got personal experience that will make it painful for us. And I'm also aware I'm a man speaking about a subject that, although it does affect men, it is different for the way that it affects women. It's never going to be something that will happen to my body. And as a result, I am aware there is a difference between me and some of many of us hearing this. And so I'm going to ask God to help us as we open the word and that his word and spirit together would bring yeah a, some clarity and some help and some encouragement and some if needed some challenge but also some healing and some wholeness and restoration so let's pray together shall we heavenly father we thank you so much for your word and your spirit and how the two of them work together to bring the grace of god the love of god the, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the compassion of God into our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that as we study your word together and as we seek to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, you would open our hearts to receive what you want us to do and how you want us to live and that you would transmit your grace to us again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this is a, this is a painful difficult subject for many of us and I vividly remember the first time I encountered the realities of abortion I guess through a conversation with a friend who I was at university and seeing a friend experience the consequences of their decision to abort a child and it's one of the conversations I've had in my whole life that I can remember the most vividly I remember where I was I remember what they were saying and how they were saying it I was 20 years old I remember the the pain and the guilt and the devastation and the sense of loss. And strangely, my, actually, my friend spoke to me about it because I was a Christian. It was an interesting dynamic. It, it was as if they were thinking, I know this is morally wrong, but I didn't see there was another way out and I didn't see the alternative. And so I did it anyway, but I know I shouldn't have. It was almost like a confession in this particular dynamic. And this is why it's hard to hear because, and it will be hard to hear for some of us, even in the next sentence, abortion is morally wrong. It's, it's sinful. It's not something we should do. And people in the situation who do it are often aware of that. That's the strange thing, but feel like I've been trapped into a situation that I didn't want to be in for whatever reason. And my friend was certainly aware of that as we were talking. And there's no point in denying, actually, that it's wrong to make people feel better. It can, you can sometimes feel like the compassionate thing, but it, it isn't really because moral clarity on good and evil is actually a good thing. 
What we need to do then is give people a way back and help people say, but here's what Jesus has done for you. And what people need alongside clarity is they need grace. They need the grace of God to come to them. They need to know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just in this area. This isn't just, this isn't the only thing where people go, gosh, this is a really bad thing you've done. No, 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 all of us have done that. I've done things in the last week since I saw you last that require forgiveness from a holy God. I've done things that blot my copy, but you have too. And all of us together stand sinners before a holy God. And yet, Paul goes on, are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And it's because Jesus has died for us and his blood covers all sin, not just this one, all sin, that we can come to him and celebrate the freedom that comes from being in Christ and having our sins forgiven. His grace is always for us. So no, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It's not the thing you do that puts you under God's curse or anything like that. If you or your partner have had an abortion, we would love to be able to help you, to pray with you, to direct you in to courses or resources that may be able to help you. Here's just two actually that we're in some way associated with. One, the Amber Pregnancy Crisis Pregnancy Care Center is, uh, we've got someone in the church who works there and they provide outstanding crisis pregnancy care and baby loss support. That might be really helpful for you or for someone very close to you. Holy Trinity Brompton, great church just up the road from whom we get the Alpha course. They also run a post-abortion healing course, which again is appearing on the screen, which again, it might be that that's for you a really important next step from a message like this. But whatever the next step for you is, I want you to know that the blood of Christ covers all sin. His grace is always for you. And all of us who come to him in repentance and faith, he never turns people away and says, no, what you've done has put you beyond the pale. And that grace that he gives to us in Christ is expressed, among other things, by God adopting us into his family. And that's the other part of this message. I want to, Another subject I want to consider is the relationship between the grace of God and adoption. So we have abortion, adoption, and grace, and how the three of them are all connected because adoption is a beautiful picture of the saving work of Christ that we then get to express to other people by literally adopting them into our families and giving them a home with us just as God gives us a home with him. So as we look at scripture together, my prayer is that we will see the connections between abortion, adoption and grace and that all of us would experience God's goodness together, whatever our stories might be. Let's read from Luke chapter 1 and I'm going to begin reading at verse 26. Luke chapter 1. And verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of God. This is a remarkable and very beautiful passage of scripture. I think it contains one of the most quoted lines in history. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you in some older translations. But it also presents us, more importantly for the purpose, our purposes today, presents us with a deeply Christian theology of children, if you want to call it that. And so as we look at it, I want you to notice four things as we just walk through just a few brief observations on the text and the theology of children that it presents to us, even though the passage is primarily, of course, about the Lord Jesus and what he will come and do. The first thing to notice is in this passage, as elsewhere in scripture, children are a gift. The gospel begins, the gospel story in Luke begins with two women who could never conceive naturally. One, because she's a virgin, she's never had sex with a man. The other, because the woman is past childbearing age and significantly past by the sounds of things. Yet both of these women, who, for whom natural conception would be impossible, both of these women conceive, for, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Children are a gift. Children have been given to these two women whose lives, although are opposite ends of the age spectrum, their actually lives are in parallel in a sense because they could never conceive by natural means. Now, that's obviously not how most children are conceived in scripture, let alone today but it does reflect the widespread biblical teaching that children are an inheritance from the Lord. Psalm 127 verse three, a sign of favor, a gift. God's saying, this is a blessing. This is something I am creating within you. This is not something for which you work so hard and then deserve it. This is something that I give you. I create life and I'm the only one who can. So on the one hand, That means that children are given as opposed to being earned or deserved or merited. They're not a right in that sense. Children are a blessing. That's why Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 42. It's a blessing. So we've got a, a, children are a gift and not an entitlement. But on the other hand, children are a gift as opposed to a curse. Children are not a curse. They're not a, in that sense, just a burden or something, an inconvenience. And that goes right back to Genesis 1 where, God creates human beings and then commissions us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God. It's, it's a People are a gift to the world, not a curse. We're not just a drain on resources or taking up space or oxygen or water or bricks that could be given to someone else. We are a gift to the world made by God. 
Now, our culture is very muddled on this because our culture, of course, simultaneously thinks of pregnancy kind of as a right to which you're entitled, but also, and you can engineer it if you want to, but also as a burden that you can get rid of if you want to. And scripture says, no, 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 it's not. Children are a gift of God. Second thing to notice is that childbearing is an act of faith. Mary starts out greatly troubled in verse 29. And then she's very confused, which is, how will this be? In verse 34. But she ends in faith. She starts off worried, then becomes confused, but ends up in faith. Behold, she says. One of the most extraordinary statements in the Bible, I think. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, I've got no idea how this is going to work out in the natural, but I trust the word of the Lord, and I'm going to believe him that he's going to carry me through. Now, of course, Mary's situation is not just unusual, completely unique. But pregnancy for every woman, and actually for the men who stand with them, pregnancy can be deeply, greatly troubling. It can be a time of great anxiety, obviously a time of great physical stress and pain and discomfort and inconvenience. It can be confusing. People, for very different reasons, admittedly, but people can ask the same question Mary did. How on earth is this going to work? Particularly if you're not married, as Mary wasn't. We're not in control of the situation. The only way through is faith. The only way through is someone saying, God has brought this life into my womb, so I'm going to have to trust him, which is what Mary does. And as a result, becomes this wonderful example of how to respond to the gift, but sometimes very challenging gift of children. So children are a gift. Childbearing is an act of faith. Third thing to notice in the text is that unborn children are living, personal, spiritual human beings. So look how unborn children are described in this text. So this really matters for our understanding of cultural issues like abortion. It's very important that we understand, so what is an unborn person, an unborn child? Are they a person? Do they, do they, have, do they bear the image of God like, like I do? Or are they somehow less than that? Are they just a clump of cells? Well, this is the way the word of God describes them. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Verse 42, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 44, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So you see, this is a, this is a personal being who is able to leap with joy and who's described as a baby and who's able to be the subject of blessing, not just a clump of cells, a human individual. Now compare all of that with, we didn't read it, but verse 15, chapter 1 and verse 15 of Luke, describes John the Baptist like this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So a baby in the womb is able to be full of the Spirit. So we are talking here about a, a fully human person, not yet fully formed, but then of course neither is a newborn baby in many ways. No, to some degree, neither am I. But a baby who's in, in the womb is fully human, fully personal, able to be filled with the Spirit, a subject of, or object of blessing, an individual with if effectively enough um, personal agency to be able to jump for joy when they hear news. I mean, again, this isn't the norm for unborn babies rejoicing at news that they hear from someone else in the home, but this describes very much a real human person. That's the third thing to notice. And then the fourth thing to notice, which might sound like a strange one, is that Jesus himself was adopted. I don't know if you'd ever thought about that. This passage is very clear that 
Joseph is not Jesus's biological dad, right? That couldn't be clearer, right? The child within you is going to be from the Holy Spirit. It's not from Joseph. You guys haven't had sexual relations yet, but God's created this child. And yet the passage also says in verse 32, did you notice this? The Lord God will give to him, to Jesus, the throne of his father, David. Now, David is not, in that sense, Jesus's biological ancestor. But Joseph is going to adopt Jesus as his son. And as a result, Joseph's lineage, going right the way back to King David, will be given to Jesus. So Jesus has been adopted into Joseph's family, even though Joseph is not his biological dad. And he's received all the rights that a child in that culture would have as a result of having Joseph as your dad and David as your great, 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 great granddad. And it's really important to the gospel story that both of those things are true. Jesus was adopted. Now, if those four things are true, and particularly the first and the third ones, namely that children are a gift and the unborn children are living, personal, spiritual human beings, then it dramatically affects how we treat unborn children. Scientifically, we know that life begins at conception. There's no serious doubt about that in any scientific research. People think, oh no, actually this... This organism isn't alive until week 10 or week 20 or whatever. No, we know that life begins at conception. That's, that's clear. That's when you get all the, the DNA and the chromosomes you, you're going to have. Theologically, we know that unborn children are fully human persons. We've just seen that from Scripture. Now, if you don't believe the Bible, you might not accept that conclusion, but that's what the Bible says. That's what, as Christians, we're going to come and say, well, what does God's word say? Let it be to me according to your word. And the answer is, yeah, an unborn child can be filled with joy, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and so on. Intuitively, we all know that, actually. In our culture, as much as any other culture, we know because we say things like, I can feel the baby kicking. We don't say, I can feel the fetus kicking, and one day it'll become a baby. We know that. We know that. We see a, a picture of well, 12-week scans. You've probably had them on your fridge at some point in your life if a friend of yours had sent you one or something like that. We just say, this, it's a baby. You don't say, look at the fetus. You say, no, it's a baby. I know that this is a human person. I can see enough of them to understand that this is a real human. And that actually they do bear God's image. Admittedly, a very small version of it, but they do. I remember watching the movie Juno. I don't know if you ever saw it. Maybe many of us didn't, but... Um, whatever it was, 10 or 15 years ago. And just this re remarkable scene, the whole, the whole story is about a woman who, a young, a young girl basically gets pregnant and then ends up, she's gonna go and have an abortion. She goes to stand to an abortion clinic and there's a friend of hers who is protesting outside the clinic who just calls out to her at one point. She says, do you know that your baby has fingernails? And she says, really, fingernails? And goes into the clinic and then eventually, and can't go through with it and comes out and instead decides to take the baby to term and have the baby adopted. And it's quite powerful because it's a Hollywood movie uh, with sort of Hollywood name actors in it that nevertheless has this line, your baby has fingernails. You think, whoa, that is a, a daring thing for a movie to explore in this day and age. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, we, we do know that that's what it is. This is, a, a, this is a baby who's got the same kind of features as you have, just much smaller. Morally, we know that all human persons have a right to life simply because they are human persons. We know that in every other situation, of course. We, just as, by the way, the reverse is true, that if a group of people is ever looking to eliminate the rights of another group of people, one of the first things they do is to dehumanize them, to start speaking about them as if they're not fully human by comparing them to animals or whatever it is. And in this case, we go, no, we know that morally, if you bear the image of God, if you're a human being and you bear the image of God, you are 
entitled to right to life and dignity because you are human, not because you've achieved something as well. Medically, we know that we all seek to preserve the lives of those who, of human beings, wherever it's possible. That's just a medical normal standard. It's true of mothers, it's true of babies as well. And of course, you, you, don't, you don't have to choose between the two. You don't have to say, are we going to preserve the life of mother or baby? If the mother is at risk and in distress, you look to preserve the life of the mother because otherwise you can't save the life of the baby. But it's not like, a, it's a sort of false choice. You, you Medics don't have to decide, say, oh, I'll have to save the baby or the mother. It just doesn't present itself that way. And so you have to do is say, no, both of these are image bearers of God and we're going to look to save both. And that's what happens. But the oddity we have in our culture is that you could have two wards in the same hospital, in one of which people were fighting to save the life of a 22-week-old baby. And somewhere else in the same facility, you could have people trying to terminate the life of a 22-week-old baby. You think, this is, this is crazy. This is just reflects a, a lack of moral clarity on human life and, and what it is. And legally, we would say that the law should protect the rights of the most most basic human rights, especially those of the weak and vulnerable. And last year, 210,000 or so babies were aborted in this country. And I think that, that's a, that's a, that reflects a, a, one that somewhere on the line, people are saying either I'm confused scientifically or morally or theologically or medically or legally, but this should not be, brothers and sisters. And this is the, the world, this is the culture we're in. I'm not here to make a point about legality and changing the law. Ultimately, that isn't up to me. But that is a very simple explanation of why Christians shouldn't support abortion. There are lots of more advanced arguments available. Lots of people have written huge books about all of those different arguments. But before we move on, that's, the, that's hard to hear. Okay? I know that. I know this is painful. But before moving on, I want to make the connection between abortion and grace. You see, in the Christian vision of the gospel, personhood is given. It's not earned, it's not achieved, it's not deserved or merited. If you're a human, you because you are human, you are worthy of care and love and protection regardless of anything you have or haven't done. Now what abortion does is it follows the, a different logic. You could call it the logic of justification by works. There's a certain level you need to reach before you're worthy of life, effectively. You need to reach a certain level of sensory response or viability or intellectual capacity or whatever it might be before you deserve to be here. So a couple of examples, admittedly slightly extreme examples, but from very, very serious, intelligent scholars. Francis Crick, who co-discovered the double helix structure of DNA. It's one of the great, probably the greatest scientific discovery of the 20th century. He said, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to live. You see, the logic there is very, admittedly, it is quite extreme. But what he's saying is you have to satisfy certain criteria before you have the right to be alive. James Watson, his, his partner with whom he discovered the, the structure of DNA. If a child were not declared alive until three days after birth, then all parents could be allowed the choice that only a few are given under the present system. How is it? You could have a baby at two days old say, no, they're not worth being alive. Peter Singer, um, a philosopher and ethicist very famous in these, in these circles, he even said a three-year-old is a grey case. Now, again, these are extremes, but what they're doing is reflecting, and he's a very serious academic who would be very well known in this kind of literature, 
And they're, they're making the case that you actually have to do something. You have to reach a certain standard before you deserve to be here. To which the scriptures say, no, you don't. You don't have to pass certain tests to be worthy of life or of full humanity. You are made in the image of God. You're created, you're chosen, you're loved by God simply because you're a human and you're made to look like him. It's a totally different logic. It's the logic of grace. And one of the most beautiful images for that grace and that kind of love God shows to people simply for being human is the beautiful image of adoption. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. In love he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. God doesn't just redeem the enslaved or justify the ungodly or forgive the sinner. He also adopts the orphan. Psalm 68 verse 5, father to the fatherless and defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's who God is. He's the kind of God who doesn't just, he doesn't just want to forgive you or redeem you or break you out of slavery or break the bad habits that have held you back. He doesn't just want to justify you in his law court, although he does and it's really important that he does. He also wants to adopt you into his family. God is a God who sees the fatherless floundering, wondering if they're loved and accepted, wandering around without hope and without God in the world. And he takes them, us, into his family and he gives them, us, all the privileges of sons and daughters and heirs. That's what God does. So he is father to the fatherless. He chooses us. He welcomes us into his home. He reorganizes his whole family to accommodate us. We're not just acquitted by a perfect judge or atoned for by a perfect sacrifice. We are adopted by a perfect father. Josh Butler says, adoption is a picture of God's grace. It restores identity, security, and belonging. It's received as a gift, not won by achievement. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love, yet God delights to give it. If abortion symbolizes works religion, Adoption is an icon of grace. That's why adopting children is such a gloriously gospel-shaped thing to do. I saw a Barnard Group survey recently which showed that practicing Christians are twice as likely to adopt as the rest of the population, which I thought was quite a fascinating statistic. Although it didn't actually surprise me. But adoption says to the child, you are loved and chosen and accepted and made heirs, not by works, but entirely by grace. It also says to those who are considering abortions, there are other alternatives here. If you find the idea of raising this child too much, then someone else will raise them as their own. And it also says to the world, quietly but insistently, this is what God is like. He is a father to the fatherless, a mother to the motherless. He delights in us and he wants us to be part of his family, even though we've done nothing to deserve it. Now, adoption is not easy. And many of us have lived through that in personal experience, either as someone who's been adopted or someone who has adopted someone else. Even in the very best scenarios and best circumstances, adoption is always a response to a tragedy of some kind which is painful for everybody and it can be really complicated and costly and challenging and it's not for everybody. If it is something you're considering, praise God, uh, but I wanted to put up the link to Home for Good, who are a wonderful charity that we know and have worked with in the past 
just wonderful fount of resources and advice and think, understanding of the process and understanding of the things that people often struggle with and support, uh, which you wanted to make you aware of if you were not already. And there are also many others in our own community who either in the right now are adopting or have just done so, or perhaps have got a long history of adopting and experiencing some of the consequences and how to grow through it. And we just want you to make, make you aware, this is something, if you weren't already aware, that we've got a lot of experience of firsthand in this church and we'd love to stand with you. And many of those people will, be, will have advice or wisdom that they can share and help with. But adoption for all of its costs does put the heart of God on display like very few other things can, that he is indeed the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. And what we're going to do to conclude, actually, is to finish is we're going to take communion together. And I think it's really important that we do this because communion, the Lord's Supper, is our opportunity to come together and confess our sins and effectively throw them all on the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I've sinned. It may be something I regard as very big. It may be something I regard as very small, but I have sinned and I need your grace to cover me and I need your blood to wash away all my sin and I need to feed on your body because if I don't, I'm going to suffer for my sin and I don't want to do that. So I come to you and ask for freedom and forgiveness and hope. And communion is how we do that as the people of God and we're going to be led through that in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to pray and lead us in a prayer that I've used before that I hope will just help us express confession of sin. Because this is, a, this is a moment in the service where we get to remember how big God's grace is and how far God was prepared to go in order to cover the sin that we've committed. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer that may well be familiar to many of you now. And then I'm going to say what effectively what's called absolution, which is where the pastor effectively says, you are forgiven if you've prayed this prayer. And this is what we're going to do. So a prayer, the prayer goes like this. You can just sit and listen, but please pray it in your heart with me if you're a follower of Jesus um, before we come to the table. But it goes like this. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought, word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, and we are truly sorry and we repent of all our sins. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. And this is when in the service the pastor says to the people, may almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal through Christ our Lord. Amen.